Romans 8, uh, Paul again is building now off of what he's written in 6 through 7 into 8. Again, no chapter breaks. So all these things are connected. Paul's been talking about sanctification through the work of God. He's declared things that were true doctrinally. He shared kind of a testimony of his own position of being a person who was saved, justified, but then still finding himself imperfect as a sinful human being, coming up against the law and realizing the law showed all the things that were still sinful in him. And the law was holy, just, and good. It didn't make him a sinner. It just proved him a sinner and how bad sin was in his life. And he comes to the point where he says, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I'm doing those things. Yet I realize all those things are sin in me, what, what I've been dead to. And even in this battle, even though I'm a wretched man, I have a deliverer. I thank God, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he moves now into chapter 8 with that first verse saying, There is therefore, built off of everything he's been talking about, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he's going to tie in now this whole struggle he's been talking about in sanctification to so much more. The Spirit of God is going to be mentioned here about 17 times. There's a little bit of debate as to if it's the Holy Spirit or the human spirit in some of those, although it kind of washes out theologically because it's the Holy Spirit's work on the human spirit anyway. But in, in just terms of usage, outside of maybe Jesus' teaching in John, between 13 through 16 there, the Holy Spirit is mentioned here more times than just about anywhere else. And many people would see this, commentators, Christians, church fathers, as really kind of the finest description of true Christian life, what Christian life really is. Uh, if you were going to describe it, this, this chapter lays it out. And it's, it's a chapter that is so rich and so dear to so many hearts and has been through the years. So there's so many wonderful things here. Certainly it opens with no condemnation, and someone says, and it ends with no separation. Two beautiful bookends here of this chapter. So we're going to begin to see now the work of the Spirit, the way God delivers us in this battle, spoken about particularly. So again, verse 1, Paul declares, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So building off of this person who's been in a battle, they want to be sanctified, they find their own sin nature pressing against them in these places, yet they know that Christ has delivered them, that person is not under condemnation in Christ Jesus. Being carnal, wretched men, we still sin. We have to deal with condemnation from others, yes, but very often from our own selves. And Satan knows this, and he knows how to push our buttons to leave us under the place of condemnation. And I think it's just important to recognize that it, the verse says a lot, but if it says at least 
one thing, it's that Christ does not have us in that place. And the work of Christ does not have us in that place. Satan will work to bring us to a place of condemnation. He particularly does it in two ways. People begin to despair of themselves or they begin to despair of God. When, when people, human beings, begin to despair at ourselves, we look at ourselves and our own actions and we begin to see sin because we're still imperfect. Eventually, somewhere, if you look at yourself enough, you're going to see sin. And instead of looking to Jesus for self-defense, when we begin to look at our own actions for self-defense, maybe our own history, maybe our own previous uh, reputation, we, we try to defend ourselves through ourselves, what happens is you just eventually find more sin. Somewhere your self-defense is going to break down in your own actions, and we all fall short of desiring even the good that we want to see in our own lives. And at that point, finding that kind of imperfection within, whether it's our temper, greed, so he's looking at pornography again, trying to shake certain thoughts, self-indulgence, lack of self-control. We find these places and Satan begins to condemn us. And you try to, try to see in your life, well, you shouldn't condemn me because of these other actions in my life or things in my life. We just find more weakness. And then we begin to say, well, maybe it's true. Maybe... I'm not even really saved. Maybe I am condemned. Maybe I'm never going to beat this thing. Maybe what God says in his word about me and his work for me are not everything the Bible says that they are. And people find themselves in a place where they're teaming up then with a liar and a murderer against the way and the truth and the life. Now, on some levels, even though it's sad and we can begin to despair, it's, it's an outcome of spiritual pride. We don't, we don't, pride seeing its own downfall isn't happy. We think we're doing well as Christians, think we're on a certain level, then we find out we're still just sinners like everybody else. We can either defend ourselves or we can acknowledge, no, I'm still a sinner. And the reality is, Satan knows that, and he will try to get us to focus on ourselves then. Oh, focus on your own actions. Oh, yeah, you've been doing good for a week, and he knows you're not going to do good at very long. And there, there becomes a, a despairing of yourself, of what's happening in yourself, over who God is and what he says. Or the person feels condemned because they begin to despair in God and his power in their life. We look at ourselves, we begin to say God's work isn't enough. God's word isn't enough. And in rebellion to God's work and God's word, we begin to demand things from God, some sign, some mark, some spiritual experience that we shouldn't be condemned, something kind of special. And some people, if they don't get what they want, because they're not satisfied in what God's word says and what his work was for them on the cross, 
they turn to even almost anything else, some other spiritual thing, some kind of pagan practice, whatever kind of spiritual work they might think will help them. But the reality is, it's Satan who has you there. It's the enemy who's going to have you in the place where you're looking at yourself in your own works and your own sin, and you feel condemned. So you feel either it's me or it's him. And I got to either do more work or turn to some other spiritual power that can change this place of condemnation that I'm in. When really, Jesus doesn't have you there. Either you have yourself there, or he's deceived you into being in that place. And we have to be careful, because the enemy's smart. He knows these things. A.W. Tozer, in his book, I Talk Back to the Devil, great title, right? says this, as for myself, I have learned to talk back to him, the devil, on this score. I say, yes, devil, sin is terrible, but I remind you that I got it from you. And I remind you, devil, that everything good, forgiveness and cleansing and blessing, everything that is good, I have freely received from Jesus Christ. That's his response. Some of us might be a little bit more like Martin Luther who said it is the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. If I can hold on to the distinction between the law and the gospel, I can say to him any and every time that he should kiss my backside. (laughs) For even if I sinned in saying that, I would say, should I deny the gospel on this account? Right? His whole point is, God's got it. Some of us were were a different temper. Dietrich Bonhoeffer just said, we shouldn't talk to anybody about our sins except Jesus. That's that's a pretty nice way to go at it, too. Some of you might need to scream at the devil a little bit instead of being condemned. I don't know. There's different tempers, certainly, in those things. But all of their point is simply this. If I begin to have conversation with the devil about my sin, I'm going to find myself condemned. The freedom from condemnation comes in Christ Jesus. All my good is in him. All my forgiveness is in him. All my cleansing is in him. He already knows this battle that's going to be happening in us, and he's already worked to lay out my freedom from that. And I can again reckon myself dead to those things. That's why it's added on here. And there's some manuscript a debate in the second half of the verse, whether it should be placed here or only in verse 4, because it's repeated where it says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, theologically, I don't have a problem with it, because in the last chapter, verses 17 and 20, Paul re- repeated the same phrase to repeat something in emphasis, and he's done the same thing here, I would believe, simply saying, walking according to the flesh will lead to condemnation. Of course, I'm going to live in sin. I'm going to see sin in my life. But walking according to the Spirit isn't going to lead me to condemnation. It's going to lead me to freedom or to conviction. And conviction is a different thing than condemnation. Somebody said you can tell them apart because they don't always feel good, either of them. But you can tell them the difference is condemnation will lead you away from Christ. Conviction will lead you 
closer to Christ. When I'm a person who's condemned, I'm looking at myself feeling like who, right, Satan tempts you to sin, and then he tempts you to stay away from God. Who are you to even go to church? Who are you to even serve? Who are you to read your Bible right now? Who are you to pray? Who are you to worship? You know that you just failed there. You promised God you were going to wake up every day this week and pray early. What did you do? You shouldn't pray. That's condemnation. Conviction is a person who says, you're right, Lord, but I'm coming to you because I'm weak and I need help. So wash me, forgive me. Give me the self-control that only you have. And they come to the Lord in prayer. They don't run from it. They don't turn from it. And we'll all face places of our own sin. And in that battle, the, the enemy wants to lead us to a place of condemnation where we despair. We despair in God's work on our behalf or our own work. And the Holy Spirit wants to lead us to Christ, closer to him, where we find cleansing, washing, forgiveness. There's another story about Martin Luther. This is more tradition. Um, we don't know if this really happened or not, where Satan appeared to him in a dream one night. There's a couple different versions of the story, but it basically goes he came to him and began to accuse him of sin and had them all written out on this scroll. And Martin Luther said, is that all? And he said, no, there's more, and began to continue to accuse him of sin, many of which were true in his life. He began to write them out till it got to the end of the scroll. And he said, now is it done? And Satan said, yeah, it's done. And he said, then right at the end of that, John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it was the end, right? The, the point is, Jesus has made a way for imperfect human beings to walk with him. We can walk in the light and have fellowship with him because the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. And my freedom from condemnation, whether that story is true or not, the basis of it is true, comes from the fact that Jesus has paid for it. He has made a way for me to walk with him after the Spirit. And a person who realizes that can come to him no matter what. Right? It's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter and Judas both sin. Judas despaired in himself and of Jesus Christ. And he went out and hung himself. He went to the Pharisees. They didn't care. I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? You see to it. But Peter, he denied Christ. He wept. But he went back to Jesus. And he was forgiven. And he was cleansed. God used him. Worked in his life. And there was no condemnation in Christ Jesus for Peter. And there's not for us who are in Christ Jesus. He says in two, building on that, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We're brought back to this discussion about laws, not just the Old Testament law, but laws as acting principles. And Paul's contrasting the law of the spirit of life with the previous law he talked about, which is the law of sin in chapter 7. 
and he talked about how the law of sin would keep us somewhere, but there's a new law that transcends it. Again, like aerodynamics, gravity is a real law, but aerodynamics also is a law, therefore planes can transcend gravity, and they're more powerful. If you're drowning, there's laws about matter, how weight works, somebody throws you a life raft, right? or some floaties, and you put them on your arms, you're good. Why? Not because you have the strength, because there's a new law working in you that is keeping you afloat now. And that law transcends the other law of you sinking in the water. Well, there's a new law, Paul says, at work. Even though I'm an imperfect human being, and that is still true in me, the new law is I have life in the Holy Spirit. And that life in the Holy Spirit has transcended the old law of me living in sin. And it is a new way that I can now live out the life of Christ. Notice, this is a truth that has already been accomplished. He says, has made me free. It is past tense. It's a discovery of life that God had given to Paul that he's speaking about, that he's been speaking about since chapter 5, really. This is, this is a new thing. And the, the, way, like the question becomes, okay, how does this life work? What, what does it look like? What does that mean? Well, here's what he says, just very simply. Paul just declares these things. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has made me free from the law of sin and death. It works in Jesus by abiding in Jesus. It grows like the lilies grow, which don't toil or spin, Jesus says. It's a transference of life, like a plant grows, again, through life that's given to it. Um, we talked about at the end of the last chapter. It's a trusting instead of a trying. It's I've received this new force in my life, but it's not just a power. It's a human being who's working in me, who's changing me, who's giving me life that I didn't possess before. And it works organically. We, our problem is we want to figure out a method for something. We don't, we don't want to be, you know, forced into the situation where we got to rely on something else. We'd rather kind of be able to speed things up and control it and make it happen the way that we want. And that's why we run into problems. But Paul says, no, the way this works is it works in Christ Jesus. Uh, Watchman Nee, I like the way he put it in his book, The Normal Christian Life, says this. This is the truth. God will not give me humility or patience or holiness or love as separate gifts of his grace. He's not a retailer dispensing grace to us in packets, measuring out some patience to the impatient, some love to the unloving, some meekness to the proud, in quantities that we take and work on as a kind of capital. He has given only one gift to me all our need, his son, Christ Jesus. As I look to him to live out his life in me, he will be humble and patient and loving and everything else I need in my stead. The life of God is not given us as a separate item. The life of God is given us in the Son. Our relationship to the Son is our relationship 
to the life. God doesn't just snap out things that we need and then let us roll with them. He says, here's how I'm going to sanctify you and provide you everything you need. I'm going to give you my son. And he's going to live, dwell in you through his Holy Spirit. And all the things I need, I am going to find in relation to him. Do I need grace? Do I need strength? Do I need more self-discipline or self-control? Do I need freedom? I'm not going to find those things independent of Jesus. I am going to find those things in my immediate life being connected to Jesus Christ. And he is going to work those things in me as he wills and sees fit. I don't get to design the program. I just stay connected to the vine. And when I stay connected to him, he works in me what is fitting for his own purpose and his own will. He has set me free. 1 John 5, 11 through 12 says this. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I'm, I'm free from sin by being connected to Jesus Christ. That's how I'm free from sin. It's not some trick. I just need to stay immediately connected to him, and his life becomes a new law that transcends the law of me having to live in sin. And he's done that through the work of his Holy Spirit. We make errors. We make mistakes. We're imperfect, sinful human beings. None of that disproves this reality. There are tons of promises that Jesus gives about coming to give life and that more abundantly. And it's not just when we get into eternity. It's now. And even though we are still imperfect, there are tons of young, middle-aged, and old Christians of every culture and of every age since Jesus Christ gave us these promises in his Holy Spirit who walk humbly with their God that can say, this is true. There's a new law that came into my life and changed me. Changed who I was, changed the way I thought, grew new graces in my life that I never possessed outside of him. And it's not because they found some method. It's because of a person. The divine work of a person has set them free. Now, Paul's going to further describe this in 3 and 4. He'll say, for what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So here, here we see what God has done in verse 3 for us. And what God has done in verse 4, in us. Paul's going to describe these things, right? First, God has done something for us. The righteous requirements of the law, he says, that they could not be made known, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. So the law could show sinful human beings that they had a problem. 
but we could never meet its requirements. Those who only had Adam's sinful life could never meet the holy, just, good requirements of the law. And the law didn't have the power to change us. It just had the power to show us that we fall short. It couldn't give us new life. It just showed us we were lacking life. The requirements were good, but they could never be fulfilled in our nature. So God did something for us, he says. And what he did, he did by sending, again, this phrase, his own son. Not just Jesus Christ, his own son. He'll say that again in 832. His own son, remember chapter 5, his own love expressed the love of God, expressed in giving his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, come taking on our nature. On account of sin, the idea is for an offering for sin. The, the ones that could never live out the law perfectly, God did something for them. He sent his own son. The one in the Old Testament picture, Jesus is like a picture of the ark that has the Ten Commandments inside of it, right? Jesus had his Father's will in his heart, his very life. And in his life, the life of Jesus Christ, he never broke those tablets of the law. The goodness of the law was met. The holiness of the law was met. The just nature of the law was kept. Its honor was vindicated. Its nature was proven. All its commands were obeyed from the heart. And in the end, its penalty was also exacted. Everything about the law was fully fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. There was one place that God the Father could look where there was never a sinful motive, never a sinful thought, never an action out of place, never a day where Jesus wasn't where he was supposed to be. Everything always pleasing to the Father. What we could never do, God did for us in sending his son as an offering for sin. And he ends in that three, so he condemned sin in the flesh. All our condemnation was already dealt with in Jesus Christ. All of it. That's why there is, therefore, now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. It's not because our failings don't deserve to be condemned. It's because, again, they were already condemned in Jesus. They were already taken care of. The curse of the law was already carried. Again, God doesn't just forgive us. He paid for sins. Therefore, he can justly say you're forgiven. God doesn't just say you're free from the law. He freed us from the law. Therefore, he can say, you're free from the condemnation of the law. So as an imperfect person, I can sin and then go immediately right back to Jesus. Because it's already been dealt with. He had one perfect son. He's not looking for another one. He already dealt with it. He knows who I am. And now I have freedom to be cleansed in him and approach him. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He came to deal with our condemnation. If you find it, it's not from him. It's not from Jesus. Satan wants to use it to keep you away from Jesus. He wants to use it to keep you away from Jesus' will in your life. He wants to keep you away from blessing. He'll make you feel condemned about going to church or condemned about reading your Bible or condemned about connecting with other Christian people. He'll make you feel condemned. I'm not spiritual enough to be with these people. All you got to realize is that's not coming from Jesus. And if you're going to church or reading your Bible or praying or connecting with other Christian people because you want to please Jesus, then you need to realize that's the enemy. All the condemnation he's already taken. He doesn't need to be condemned more to deal with our sin. He has already done this on our behalf. God did this, Paul says. And he did this for us. But now in verse 4, he says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. His emphasis here now is the power of sin in the flesh was broken at a, at a particular point in history. This crucial cosmic moment of time where sin, our sin was condemned in Jesus Christ, was the point of our freedom from our old man, from the power of sin, from the demands of the law, and from the condemnation of sin in the flesh. So that, so that now... We've all been set free not to get a new list of laws. Okay, the old Ten Commandments were fulfilled, and God's like, that's good because now I got a list of 50 commandments, and I'm going to give them to you. Right? And, and these are going to be, he's not, he doesn't have a new list of commands that he wants us to follow with no power to follow them again. He changed it all up. He says, I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to give them my spirit, the same spirit that fulfilled all those commands. I'm going to give them my spirit. Now, you don't need a law because you have the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that inspired the original law that was good and holy and just lives in you. And all the things the law couldn't cover, it doesn't matter because that spirit lives in you. And he's going to fulfill those in us. Notice. This is fulfilled in us, not by us. The language here is passive. This is something that he has done. Here's how I'm going to accomplish my will, my law in your lives now in a new way. And it was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's how we do things now. We don't go back to living under the law. You're given the Holy Spirit if you're born again. You do what he tells you to do. You have the law living in you. And where you fall short, Jesus has already paid the price for those things. So he's not condemning you for them. He wants you to move forward. 
to continue to live out the life that he has given you, to surrender yourself to the law of the Spirit so that you don't have to walk under the law of sin and death. Continue to do what he's asked you to do so we don't live or walk after the power of unredeemed flesh, but in the life of the Holy Spirit. It's way better than having a whole list of commands. It's way better than living out that Old Testament law. And it's not supposed to be something that's sporadic or a haphazard experience in life. It's the foundation of the born-again Christian life. Paul just assumes this is happening. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit, and he's talking to you. He's living the life of Christ in you. He's telling you, when you lose your temper, you shouldn't have lost your temper. He's telling you, you need more self-control. He's saying to you, you're being prideful or greedy. He's the one who's telling you, convicting you, you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend or boyfriend. He's the one who's already speaking that. You don't need it written out somewhere. He's living in you and talking to you about it. Paul says in Galatians 5, 16 through 18, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. He's acknowledging this battle that we've already been talking about. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You don't need the law. You have the Holy Spirit. It's a better law in you than the Old Testament words without the life to complete them. He's given you the other half now, the better half. You have the life to live it out. Paul is writing, and I think this is interesting, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying these things, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring it, and the Holy Spirit is taking it for granted that anyone he is in gets what it means to walk according to the Spirit. The Holy Spirit assumes, if you're really a believer, you should get this. I'm already in you. You know what it is to walk with me. Is the conflict still present? Sure. But there's a new level of victory. There's a change, a supernatural change, that only comes from him, whether it's obvious So people step out of a totally different lifestyle. Or whether it's things that are less obvious, we just know he's changed us, our attitudes, our thoughts, our purposes. Who we were outside of him, we know he's worked those things in us. And all this done is done by spiritual life, divine life from God. And it happens, again, that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It happens as I remain connected with him, as I walk with Jesus, and I allow him to do his work in me. I can't try to live a holy life and also be independent of Jesus' places. That, that doesn't work. That's not how sanctification works. Like, I'll stack up a little sanctification power here. See you later, Jesus try to use it while, while uh, he's out the door and then come back when I need a little bit more. That's not how it works. I have to live my life with him. That's how he designed things to work. Augustine, I love this quote, put it like this, a vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's. 
It is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as the result of what he has done in and by Christ. So the life of God is not fulfilled by me, it's fulfilled in me. That's what Paul's saying. How can I live a divine life? How can I live the life of Jesus? There's only one way to get it from him. I'm not going to get it in me. I'm not going to get it by trying harder. I'm certainly not going to get it outside of him anywhere. The only way I can live that life is by remaining connected to him. Divine life only comes from the divine person. And he's made a way for that to happen every single day. He put a spirit in me. And there's a new law now. And you could be confused about that all you want. The Holy Spirit's like, that's what happens. I'm not confused. I'm the one in you. And I'm making this happen. And just like, again, in human life, you can, you can just experience it and not understand it fully at first. You could become more mature and you begin to understand the stages of life a little bit more. It's a bit of what Paul is doing here in explaining it. But the reality is happening one way or another. Divine life only comes from him. And he has made a way for that to happen. We can't, again, be independent, which is what he's going to pick up here in verse 5. For those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, has hostility against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here we find a description of those who walk according to the flesh from verse 4. What does that look like? Well, Paul says those who live in the flesh, and this is living in that life that's just coming from Adam outside of the Spirit of God. Believers sometimes act in the flesh, but we are not to be those who live in the flesh. Those who live in the flesh, he says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. The, the idea of to mine something isn't just intellect or knowledge. The, the idea is more occupation with and giving attention to. So, so those who are giving their attention to and are constantly occupied with the flesh live out their true character because the flesh is only going to be focused on fleshly things. Notice the progression in those verses, 5 through 8. They live in the flesh, so they're occupied with the things of the flesh, so their occupation is with things hostile to God, because God is not occupied with the things of the flesh. And therefore, if they're occupied with things that are in hostility against God, they don't please him, and the ending fruit of those things is death. So, notice, the flesh has its things, and the Holy Spirit has his things. The flesh has things to do, the Holy Spirit has things to do. Flesh has things it desires, the Holy Spirit has things he desires. Flesh has things that it thinks about, the Holy Spirit has things that he thinks about. One has goals and purposes in a way of life, and God has goals and purposes in a way of life. So from a person whose mind is always on fleshly things, 
I'm going to find myself in conflict with him. But if I have the Holy Spirit, I'm going to care about the things of the Spirit. He's with me. If, if I'm a carnal believer, then I live without minding the things of God, giving attention and occupation to the things of God. It doesn't mean I deny that God exists. It means I just forget about him. It means you could go through your day really not thinking about any of God's purposes, thoughts, plans, or things in the middle of your day. You're not thinking about God's purposes, plans, thoughts, goals in your marriage, with your kids, at your work, with the people around you. Just assuming you know what all God's purposes, plans, and goals are in your entertainment, in the way you live your life or spend your money. Am I really occupied? Am I minding the things of the Spirit? Or am I just ignoring him? Then I'm carnally minded because people who don't have the Holy Spirit don't have the Holy Spirit's influence. They don't have that law in their life. So all they think about is earthly things because that's all they got. This life is all they got. Except the problem is they end up in hostility to God then. And they don't please him. That's not what a believer's life should be. And when they're not doing that, then a believer, sadly, finds themselves in a place where they're missing out on, if I'm just focusing on worldly things without God, then I miss out on a sense of God's peace, God's life, a sense of God's pleasure. We're supposed to live pleasing to him. right? Verse 8, then says those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. Paul's going to say here, that's not you. But the point of our lives is to please God. If the Holy Spirit's in us, we're going to care about pleasing him. Paul's going to make it clear in chapter 15, we're not to live to please ourselves. Paul would say about himself in 1 Thessalonians, he lives not as pleasing men, but as God who tests our hearts. In contrast with some people who do not please God and are contrary to all men. First John, John would say, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. If I'm living in the spirit, I'm going to be a person who's concerned about pleasing God. In my life. Wherever that is. Jesus's testimony is I do always those things that please him. Right? That's, it's his life lived out in us. The father's testimony in the son was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If, if the Holy Spirit is in us, the spirit of the one who filled all the righteous requirements of the law, then that spirit that's seeking to please God is going to be in us. It's not just about the people get real technical about the law. Well, what's the matter? They're like, this is what are you saying? You're, this thing is sinful? Is watching basketball sinful? You know? Hanging out with my friends, is that sinful? Is this, is, it's not about that. It's about the law of your life. It's what are you minding? And I'll put it like this. Am I living to please myself or God? Because if you're living to please yourself before God, then yes, basketball is sinful. Because you're putting you before him. So it's not about the thing. It's about the direction. What, what is your life about? 
Who am I aiming to please? Who is first in the program? If I'm first in the program, then I'm not living in the spirit and walking in the spirit. I'm walking according to the flesh. Because I'm looking to make myself happy without God throwing lightning bolts at me. That's not legalistic. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the life of the Spirit. That's what God is working in a son and daughter that he's going to be pleased in. The flesh cannot please God. Because even if it does okay things, it's living for itself first. Not for him. Paul is going to say, verse 9 though, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, and the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who dwells in you. Paul makes it clear, these Roman believers, he's saying, you're no longer in the flesh. It's Christ who lives in you. This, this isn't you. His spirit is really living in you. You're truly born again. And how do they know they're truly born again? Notice, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit dwells in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he's not his. Paul's whole point is, if the Holy Spirit's in you, this is the life you're already living. This is how you're free from the, the law of sin and death. You have received the Holy Spirit. A Christian is a person who can say, Christ lives in me. I don't know how to explain it all. All I know is that that law is true. There is life in me that I, not, that I did not possess before. Jesus has done something. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. There are plenty of people out there who have right doctrine but they do not have a new law in their life. They don't have the spirit of life. There are churches full of people making disciples just after themselves. They do things, but there's nothing fundamentally different about them. You could go to a sporting event. You can like the event. You could pay money. You can chant your favorite team songs. The players can run around. Then they can get off the field, take off their uniforms, everybody can go home. Nobody is fundamentally different. Nobody's changed. We've just done something that we kind of liked. And there's a whole big religious game in the world that would call itself Christianity or anything else that shows up at churches, gives some money, sings the songs they like, has some fun together, goes home, and they're not fundamentally different at all. Paul says, here's how you know that you're Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you. If he does not dwell in you, you are none of his. This isn't just what special Christianity looks like. There is no Christianity outside of this. A.W. Tozer, again, in his book, The Divine Conquest, which is now entitled God's Pursuit of Man, which is a much lamer title than The Divine Conquest, because they repackage it to sell more, says this. The Christian message rightly understood means this. The God who by the word of the gospel proclaims men free by the power of the gospel actually makes them free. 
To accept less than this is to know the gospel in word only without the power. Paul said he didn't just come to preach in the word, but the gospel that he preached came in word and power. Power didn't mean that people just got goosebumps when they heard him. Power means the Holy Spirit came into the lives of men and women and fundamentally changed them because a new law was active in their life. The law of the spirit of life in Christ. And they began to live lives like Jesus. Because his life began to be connected to them. Not because they tried really hard or because they're special. Because what God promised works. If it doesn't, then what are we doing? If he can save us without changing us? then what's the point? Sadly, there's a lot of message out there just like that. You could be a convert without any type of transformation in your life. Paul draws distinctions, again, between justification and sanctification, but he doesn't ever separate the two, and neither does the Bible. There is no sanctifying work of God outside of the justifying work of God. He saves us, and part of his salvation is a new spirit and a new life that begins to work in us and change us. Different degrees, different speeds, sure. But it's there. It's there, nonetheless. And Paul says, here's how it works. You're not living in the flesh anymore. That's not you. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You want to say, what is a Christian? It's a person whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's what Paul says. You want to say, you don't have the right to tell a person they're not a Christian? No, the Holy Spirit does, though. And the Holy Spirit says, you don't have me, you're not mine. This is, this is what Christian life is. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. I am dead to my sinful nature, and I am alive in Christ Jesus. But he, he sums it up here, kind of tying these things together. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit, who dwells in you. I think Paul is doing two different things here. I think he's, it's interesting, he kind of ends with this picture of man's final resurrection. But uh, I think he's doing two things here. Number one is he's saying, look, if the same Holy Spirit that took Jesus's dead body, the one that carried the sins of the world, and raised him from the dead, and has given him life, if that same spirit works in your body, what he did with Jesus' dead body, he can get your mortal body to live right. right. If the power that raised up Jesus from the dead is also at work in you, because that's what we believe, it's the same spirit. Notice in this little passage here, it's just in verse 9 even, it's the spirit, it's the spirit of God, and it's the spirit of Christ the divine Godhead, if the Godhead dwells in you, that spirit, 
guess what? You got all you need. And it's a picture of the final state of a human being who is no longer again at conflict with their life and nature, right? Resurrected, a new body that's immortal like Jesus's body, that there's coming a day where I am no longer going to be in the battle between me and my sinful nature. And if he gave me his Holy Spirit, he's the God, not of the dead, but of the living. And if that spirit dwells in me, when I die, he's not going to leave me dead because he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. I'm going to get up and my spirit is going to have its rightful domain again over a body. It's a way better one. One that's like Jesus's body. And there's going to be harmony between those for all eternity. It's a pretty awesome picture here that he draws out. He would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's saying, if I give you this Holy Spirit, you know I'm coming through on the rest. It's all going to work out in the end. This life of God is going to raise your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a truth. He dwells in you. So we're not condemned anymore. If condemnation is over your life, it's not from the Father. The Bible says the Father pities us. The Father pities his own children. It's not from the Son. Son came to give grace, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Not from the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit who's called the, hel- the Helper and the Comforter because he knew we would need a lot of help and a lot of comfort in this life. And he dwells in you. So it's not coming from God. It's coming from the enemy. So if you just need to talk to Jesus about your sins, do that. If you need to talk a little trash to the devil like Tozer or Luther, do what you need to do. right? But in the end, you better turn to Jesus as your hope. And then that life that's in you, that life is what you need to follow and stay connected to and just abide in. And he will produce in you what he wants to produce in you. And if anybody's here tonight and you're sitting here and you have been religious, but you don't actually know if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, Maybe it's just been words. Maybe you're not sure if that dynamic is actually real in your life. Then I would simply tell you to come to him in faith and say, Lord, I need that tonight. I need that tonight. And he'll do that work in you freely. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that we get to live in the day and age where you've promised your Holy Spirit that you wouldn't leave us orphans. It's not by might or by power, but by your Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that you would just teach all of us, myself, Lord, included, what it means to walk in you, to live life according to the Spirit. 
to mind the things of your spirit in each of our lives. What your will is, what you want, what your desires are, what you're working all over the world for your own kingdom's sake. Lord Jesus, you entered our world just a babe, almost no one knowing that you're even there. And you're willing to do those simple things still in our hearts and lives through your Holy Spirit. So valuable in your sight, yet so hidden, Lord, from so much of the world around us. And I just pray, Lord, you would keep us sensitive to your work individually. And we thank you, Lord, that where we still fall short, you've already made provision that we're free in you that we can walk in the light, that we can have fellowship with you, and that the blood of Jesus Christ, your own Son, cleanses us from all sin. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.